Thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access Patreon membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure, 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what, Matt Bell, Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, Jose Antonio Vargas, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 170 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Richard T. Rodriguez. A little bit about Richard Rodriguez. He is a professor of media and cultural studies in English at the University of California, Riverside. He specializes in Latina, Latino, Latinx, literary and cultural studies, film and visual culture, and gender and sexuality studies, and holds additional interests in transnational cultural studies, popular music studies, and Comparative Ethnic Studies. The author of Next of Kin, The Family in Chicano-Chicana Cultural Politics from 2009, won the 2011 National Association for Chicana and Chicano Studies Book Award, and A Kiss Across the Ocean, Transatlantic Intimacies of British Post-Punk and U.S. Latinidad, which was published by Duke University Press in 2022. That'll be the main focus of our talk today. And he is currently completing Undocumented Desires, Fantasies of Latino Male Sexuality. The 2019 recipient of the Richard A. Yarborough Mentoring Award, granted by the Minority Scholars Committee of the American Studies Association. He is the co-principal investigator on a University of California MRPI grant titled The Global Latinidades Projects, Globalizing Latinx Studies for the Next Millennium. His show, Dr. Ricky on the Radio, can be heard weekly on KUCR. Holy crap, do you have time to sleep? <laughs> uh, not, uh, yeah, I, I need more sleep, that's that's for sure. Man. Well, mm-hmm. well, good evening. It's a pleasure to have you. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. a great honor. Well, it's great to have you, like I said, and, and um, just the classes you teach and the specialties, like, so interesting. I mean, I got to figure it's pretty dang fun to be teaching what you teach. It really is. I, I I count myself lucky to be able to teach what I do. And, you know, along with that comes some really great students that I get to work with. And it's, it's great. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll get back into that in a minute, um, just about teaching and how that informs your writing and vice versa. But I'd love to start at the beginning. Um, kind of like just a bit about your the your relationship with the written word languages. I mean, did you grow up monolingual English, bilingual, Spanglish, you know, all the above? And just kind of like your relationship with, you know, with books and, and the written word. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in um, in Santa Ana, California, and uh, both of my parents uh, were raised speaking Spanish, and they came of uh, age uh, at a moment when uh, you were punished for speaking Spanish in the public schools. And so um, my dad still has a strong command of, of Spanish, and my mom not so much, but um, we had they had the option of, of putting my sister uh, and me in bilingual classes, and they said no because they thought it was more of a hindrance than anything. Hmm. Um, much to our dismay, you know, we had to learn Spanish um, in school, but we did grow up in a Spanglish-speaking um, uh, household, and we heard Spanish pretty regularly. Um, I pretty much um, began, uh, or I should say, my love of language uh, started with my parents. You know, both of them are are wordsmiths in their own right. Oh, wow. You know, my dad loves, you know, playing with language, um, jokes and puns and my mom the same. And um, it just kind of got a little bit more formalized uh, in school when um, my favorite subject uh, all throughout elementary, junior high and high school was English. And, mm. you know, just had this love of literature that continues to this day. Mm. Who, who or what were you reading um, in those days? Well, you know, it's interesting because I just finished teaching uh, Fook Tran's book, uh, Saigon, uh, oh, which okay. is, you know, all about his experience growing up as a Vietnamese refugee in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And mm. the book is, you know, the, the chapters are titled um, after uh, a, a famous uh, book um, in the Western canon, with the exception of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And mm. it just reminded me a lot of uh, of being introduced to uh, literature by Albert Camus, like The Stranger and Charles Dickens novels and the Brontes, Wuthering Heights. And so, you know, it was all of those of those classic literary texts that, you know, I was really excited about. Uh, and then my discovery of poetry in, in college um, kind of led me in a different direction. And so, yeah, it, it, all of those books are still really important to me. Um, but they interestingly intertwine with my uh, interest in music, which I think we can talk about later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so now you went to UC Berkeley, is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you know, cl close to I mean, close to San Francisco and Berkeley, obviously, was in Oakland with such you know great traditions of of social activism and such, and obviously some great writers. I mean, Ferlinghetti, Ginsburg. Um, Definitely. You know, I mean, who who were some of the poets specifically that you were really into? Uh, I I love the romantic poets early on, and you know, and, and being an English major at Berkeley, you know, I had the chance to work with uh, professors who specialized in um, in romantic uh, literature and poetry in particular. Uh, but when I got there, you know, it was poetry had kind of uh, been center stage because Cal had just hired uh, the African American poet June Jordan. Oh and, yeah. And I took poetry workshops with uh, Yusef Kumanyaka, who was oh, a visiting man. professor at the time. Uh, and it, it seemed to me that, you know, poetry was kind of the vehicle through which to express yourself, not only personally, but also politically. And mm. 
at that time, you know, my entering class was the most diverse um, entering class at UC Berkeley, and it was in 1989. And of course, it was there was a lot of debate about affirmative action, but in that class and uh, the classes maybe, you know, a few years before and after, you know, there were so many people who went on to become writers and filmmakers and professors. Uh, some of my peers are, uh, were Viet Tan Nguyen, uh, okay. who wrote The Sympathizer, oh, yeah. and uh, Daphne Brooks, who's now a professor at Yale, who writes about popular mm-hmm. music. And so lots of people, you know, I, I could just, I could name names for, for a few hours, but it was just a really vibrant moment. And we had some really great mentors, including June Jordan and Kumanyaka and Barbara Christian and Alfred Arteaga, who is the late um, Chicano poet. Uh, yeah. And lots of, lots of poets would come through and um, I'd be there in the first, in the front row, you know, man, listening to them. Yeah. It was great. Wow. It was a great oh, moment. Yeah. Um, in all the, you know, million different ways that we are subsets of, we have, you know, we are parts of subcultures. I wonder how you felt about ideas of representation and what you read, whether that was, you know, as a six-year-old, as a 16-year-old, you know, you talk about it in the book, A Kiss Across the Ocean, about how, you know, you found a lot of solace, I'm not, I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, through, you know, certain lyrics and songs. I wonder about the same for like, you know, for literature, like if you felt like, man, he gets it, she gets it ideas of representation sure yeah it was you know gravitating towards those you know western classics if you will but then also discovering that there was a body of 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 mexican-american or chicano literature and i talk about how some of my aunts uh would check out books from the library and not return them and then pass them on to me (laughs) and and and, i celebrate that type of crime you know (laughs) <laughs> it, yeah i did too and then i feel bad because it's like ah well nobody else is gonna get the chance to read these books but i think you know yeah. in, in any case yeah so you know i was introduced to um some uh some books that were really important at the time like uh thomas sanchez's uh the zoot suit murders and um yeah, chicano by richard vasquez um um and uh, Edmund Villasenor, actually it was Edmund Villasenor who would later change his name to Victor Villasenor, uh, the author of uh, Reign of Gold. Okay. Um, and then also they were reading these Chicano movement uh, publications um, and they would tear pages out of the publications with poems that mm. were folded um, and then passed on to me. So yeah, that was my early introduction to Chicano literature, uh, which I'd later go on to study at Berkeley yeah. as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Did you ever read Villarreal's Pocho? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that was a that was an eye opener uh, when I first read it. Um, I, I wonder. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just kind of asking out loud. I'm just. I'm not. It's kind of a rhetorical. I just wonder if that book has maybe taken like, like with not revisionist history, but like if the book is looked at differently, just over the years, is like maybe simplisticish. But I, I, I just I love that book. I thought that book was so good. It, you know, it, was, it took place a lot of it in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. My family, like, you know, the good buddies, Ricky, my Italian kid from San Jose, my Italian family from San Jose, you know, but Richard Rubio to me was just like, you know, that character, I mean, living in two worlds, you know, I'm not, Lat- you know, I'm not Latino, I'm not Chicano, I'm not a pocho, but it's like, man, it, I felt like, you know, it could be so universal, but also so specific to the pocho, you know, experience. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah. And, and, and one thing about that book too, is it really spotlights the, the multiracial, multiethnic um, community of California mm-hmm. in yeah. in the early and mid 1900s. You know, you have, as you mentioned, 
uh, the Italian American characters, the Portuguese, you know, families, Japanese Americans who were interned uh, during World War II, uh, Mexican Americans and African Americans. So, yeah, it just really points to the the multiracial, multiethnic uh, dimensions of 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 that moment in California history. Definitely, as as you know, a lot of the book is about like Chicano music and Chicano music styles, and which you know, in some ways you argue you can't you know you can't pigeonhole at all. But like I mentioned, you know, you, you're just a couple years older than me. We're you know about the same age, but I just wonder, like Chicano, and especially as a professor, like is does that does that carry less maybe now of like a political connotation? Was that in older times? Was that strictly like if you're someone who's more like, you know, quote unquote, politically active? I wonder how, how you've seen like the, the meaning of Chicano kind of evolve. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for me, you know, I was familiar with the term early on uh, because of the, the books that and the books and literature that my, my aunts were introducing me to, but also in my high school, you know, there was a Mecha chapter and I, I I wasn't a member of it then. I joined um, the chapter at Berkeley when I got there. Um, uh, but, you know, I had always heard of it, heard of the term. And it, was, and it wasn't until I became aware of what it meant and its political connotations that I, you know, kind of embraced it. And I felt that really was the term for me, you know, as a Mexican-American who had kind of, you know, cultivated a, a political sensibility um, that brought me, you know, in close alignment with other people who felt uh, connected to the term but i think you know it, it i think it's still embraced and um in a way that um, is very similar to my experience you know where you have uh young mexican americans or um kids of of mexican migrant parents who feel that the term uh best identifies them mm. um i w- will share the story you know my first job out of grad school was at cal state la in a chicano studies department and I taught Chicano literature. And then when I moved to the University of Illinois um, and was assigned a course in Latino literature, um, I thought I could easily use the syllabus from Cal State LA <laughs> in a Latino literature class. And the students weren't having it, you know, ah. because, you know, not only did we have a large number of Puerto Rican and Cuban American okay, students, yeah. but the Mexican kids didn't identify as Chicano in the Midwest, mm. um, which isn't to say that there weren't students who uh, didn't identify as Chicano or Chicana or not Chicanx, but um, they were few and far. There were few and far between. Um, mm. it, they were few and far between. Uh, so, sure. yeah, yeah. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Sure. So, as you got into you know into into Berkeley and into getting your PhD, right? Yes. Your PhD is in in the history of consciousness from UC Santa Cruz. Whoa, cool. Go banana slugs, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, what a cool what what man, what a cool PhD. So you know, as far as becoming a writer, a professor, a mentor, like what um were there Eureka moments where or Eureka moment where it's like, man, I can I can do really well with the pen and people appreciate my work or this is cathartic for me or or all of the above, you know, any, any Eureka moments? Yeah, you know, I felt like I knew how to write critically. Um as an undergrad and then I went to grad school and realized that Mm. I was kind of trafficking in this convoluted academic jargon and my mentor um, who was a historian of anthropology uh, named James Clifford told me you know I need to stop writing like that because it was it was just really using ugly language ugly words Mm -hmm. I should say Mm. Um, and it really did call for kind of a a reassessment of, of, of language and you know and and it was for me just kind of returning to my writing as a poet, you know, and, 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 and letting that flow into my academic work. And, 
And I felt like that was what allowed me to have my own distinct voice. And, and I think that was an aha moment for me too, because I realized that I was starting to write more like uh, my academic role models, as well as the creative writers who, you know, I felt closely aligned with. Um, so, yeah, I think there are various moments um, throughout my career where, you know, I feel like I've kind of reinvented myself as a writer. Um, and I feel like right now is one of them. I've started uh, to turn to poetry again. And so I'm working on a book cool. of poems that has kind of been in the works for a while. Oh, nice. Yeah. As, a, as a teacher, as a professor, um, and it sounds like, I mean, you've been awarded for it as a great, you know, as a mentoring award. I'm sure that was incredibly, you know, satisfying and rewarding. And just being just being a professor, like who who what are you teaching? Like you know, who are some of the the writers you're like, man, you know, I'm sure you probably switch it up, but like kind of stalwarts. And then just as a as a reader, like who are you really excited about? You know, yeah. that are more more on the contemporary side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it depends on on the courses that I'm teaching. You know, I'd, last quarter I taught a course on, uh, or it was intro to Chicano literature. So. I taught some of the classics, um, Tomas Rivera's Y no se lo trago la tierra, um, uh, poems by Jose Montoya, uh, uh, and and then kind of brought it up to the present, uh, or the more recent present, I should say, um, works by Shuri Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa, and then um, more recent books by um, Alex Espinosa, uh, Stillwater Saints. Mm -hmm. Alex is one of my colleagues here yeah, at UCR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but right now I'm teaching a class called music and literature, and uh, that's been a lot of fun. Mm. Um, we uh, we are just finishing, as I mentioned, Fook Tran's book, uh, Saigon. Uh, we read a graphic novel by James Spooner called The High Desert about oh, growing yeah. up uh, black and punk in uh, the Imperial Valley. And mm. yeah, so, it you know, the things that I teach just, you know, vary um, tremendously. So yeah, I also taught a, a capstone course on intergenerational relationships and wow. uh, read Bless Me Ultima by Rudy Anaya. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, some just, you know, more recent stuff um, that kind of highlights the connections between people of, of, of different generations. So, yeah, it, it, it varies. And I think for me, you know, I just love teaching stuff that I'm inspired by, you know, mm -hmm. things that I think students will also love. And sometimes they, they love it and other times they don't. <laughs> so, so cons are that you don't get to like phone it in and do the same curriculum every time, but the pros are, man, you get to read just a wide swath of work and, and just keep updating and, and revising. And that's pretty cool. I'm mean, all the way from the, I've heard great things about the, about the James Spooner. Is that his first name? James? Yeah. Yeah. James Spooner all the way to, uh, to Anaya. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I like it that way because I get bored easily. I, I get right. bored if I taught the same thing over and over. I bet exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. When you talk about the Rivera classic, this is a small point, but as a Spanish language learner, like trago, like like a tragón, right? Is somebody who's like, right? A tragón yeah, is like yeah, a, yeah. So it's trago, like, like swallow, yeah, okay. devour, yeah, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So the yeah. earth ate him up kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. The so, earth did not devour him or the earth did not part, you know, that's, it's been uh, translated um, okay. differently you know, for different versions. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was always so trippy to me that like when I was younger, that like a book could have like the translator's name was on the book too. I was kind of like, well, just, you just get a dictionary, right? No, 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 no. So many different meanings and 
implications and subtext, right? Yeah. A Kiss Across the Ocean. It's got a longer title, <laughs> right? Yeah. A Kiss Across the Ocean and its transatlantic intimacies of British post-punk and U.S. Latinidad. Yes. Heck of a book. I, what a read. And it starts off with you as a 12-year-old, 1984. And, you know, talking about like Boy George, Karma Chameleon, <laughs> a great quote. I mean, you talk about your, your poetic sensibilities in addition to your academic um, acumen. And man, there's some great lines. One of them is is simple but 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 powerful you write about quote i suddenly began to see the world anew through the music of this time through boy george karma chameleon mm-hmm. what what was it that uh, was such a, a a game changer such a shift for you yeah i think it was it, it was a multitude of things really it was the music you know which was you know it, it was relatable um not only in terms of its ability to kind of move you physically, but also emotionally. Um, so it was the music and the lyrics and how the lyrics were kind of touching on on things that I think a lot of teenagers can relate to, such as alienation, no, you know, lo- no, you know, <laughs> absolutely not. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, impossible loves and, you know, all of those things. And so I think that was, um, one of the things that I think was the game changer about the music, but, but it wasn't just the music itself, but it was also like the attendant um, press that the music Mm. or the musicians were getting. Um, And it was publications like star hits uh, in the U S or smash hits in in the UK in their coverage of, of the musicians, they were able to talk about the things that influenced them. And it was not only say earlier generations of musicians like David Bowie and Roxy music, but it was also, you know, a whole bunch of artists, visual artists, writers, filmmakers. Mm. And for me, that just kind of opened up new worlds in the sense that, you know, I wanted to read what my pop music heroes were reading. I wanted to watch the movies that they were watching and, and that it really bolstered my love of of literature and kind of led to my appreciation for film and and visual art that still holds today. Huh. You referenced some um, Star Hits mag magazine. Like you talk about, it led to you know different view of politics, and you wanted to read who yeah. they like. You know, just saying. It really reminds me of like um, you know like Rage Against the Machine when you know like album liner notes. Um, Do you ever see their albums like the inside of them? Yeah. I mean. So hardcore, right? They had a reading. They had a recommended reading list. Yeah, like Mumia Abu Jamal and like Noam Chomsky. I'm like, they did not mess around, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's always cool. Like, I want to read what they're reading. You know, I want to yeah. watch the movie they're watching. Oh man. So there, you also reference a, a Johnny Rotten. Johnny Rotten was with the Sex Pistols. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. You you reference him as throwaway lines, not the word, but he had kind of you know hit a line from one of his interviews. That you talk about really like oh man he he talked about like a sense of belonging for chicano latinos yeah, yeah. i wonder what it was about what about him or this interview that really spoke to you yeah you know here here's this foremost you know recognized figure in uh or of the early british punk movement mm-hmm. uh lead singer of the sex pistols and and there and and then soon after public image limited 
you know, who relocates from the UK to Los Angeles. And in this interview, just in passing notes that, you know, he's now hanging out with Chicanos who are into, you know, this car culture. Car culture yeah. yeah. And and when I read that, I was like, what? So mm. it just, it, it just really reframed how, um, how to understand that music and, and how relationships are, um, are formed in, mm. um, in unexpected or unlikely ways. And I think that was the, you know, not only the catalyst for the book, but also a way to disprove the people who said that this music wasn't meant for me, you know, mm. and for other people who seem like unlikely listeners of, of British popular music. We talk about like the catalyst. One of the lines from the early part of the book is, quote, part of the imp- impetus to write this book comes by way of motivation from assortment of recent publications. Francesca Royster's standing, sounding like a no-no, queer sounds and eccentric acts. Uh, Carl Stanley, Mike, Michael Jaime Bercera, todo se, acaba, todo se acaba. I guess just like about connect, like what was it in 2012 or 17 or whenever you really kind of had the, when the ideas crystallized that like, you know, what was going on in the world, maybe the world at that time that made you want to go back? Was it something where you've, you know, you've always been a fan how were like some of the newer readings and impetus for going back to the eighties and, and, you know, in those times? Yeah. So I think, you know, just becoming familiar uh, with this body of literature, you know, that was academic as well as um, memoir, you know, novels and such, mm-hmm. you know, that were referencing um, this music that I listened to as well, or just music in general, it kind of gave me a green light to, you know, mm-hmm. to write about my own personal experiences with music. Uh, and, you know, Francesca Royster's book, you know, she she writes about, you know, popular, what she calls eccentric um, black musicians who for her, you know, were really important as far as kind of um, allowing her to understand her own eccentricity, you know, growing up as queer and black in Chicago. And so each one of the chapters starts with a personal anecdote and, and then segues into an analysis of Prince or Michael Jackson or Janelle Monet, uh, or Parliament, you know, and mm. and I was just really inspired by that, uh, uh, and so it kind of gave me a license to to, to write this book. Yeah, mm-hmm. imaginary, you know, salute to just eccentrics in general, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah eccentrics are the best. I hope I'm one of them. Yes, right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're that's why we're aligned here, and you know, I think you know, yeah. eccentrics are, attract each other, are, are drawn to one another. There you go. There yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. You, you wrote really um, lovingly and knowledgeably just about like uh, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but the like you know the teenage years as kind of like frozen in time in some ways. Like that's like the for us a lot of so many of us consider like our teenage years to be like the prime. Like you know, okay, Kanye West, he was big when I was a teenager. Or Morrissey was right. So what I guess what is it about like being a teenager when you kind of like claim that music, right? So like I don't know, I don't know how old Johnny, I don't know how old, um, you know, some of the bands um, that you were into, like you know Susie and you know Adamant and all this, you know, they were probably I don't know fifteen, twenty years older than you. Yet at the same time, right, we all claim them as like, oh, that was my time. So yeah. Long-winded way of getting at what is what is it you think about like how we claim this, these artists as our own when we were 17. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I, I, most of these artists um, are about 10, 10 to 20 years older 
but there was a certain kind of youthfulness or, um, you know, eccentricity, if we can use that term again, that I think that appealed to a lot of teenagers uh, like myself. And I think as a teenager, you know, you gravitate towards this music that, you know, you feel represents you or allows you to feel seen um, and you hold on to that. And, you know, as I, I was telling my students recently, sometimes, you know, you have a love for a band or an artist as a teenager and later you're like, I don't know why I like them so much. Right. But in other cases, you know, you still hold fast to um, your love of that music artist. And it's mm. I don't think it's purely nostalgia, but it's mm. it's a way that, you know, the, the music kind of allows you to, you know, again, feel seen or feel a sense of belonging um, that continues with you. And I think that's why, you know, music has this enduring appeal to so many people. It's not that you know, it it's a short-lived interest, but it actually continues to resonate, you know, the older you get. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess it's just this idea of like, you know, if you're reading something and you're kind of proud of yourself because you're like, okay, this is maybe a little bit above my level. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, if they're 10 or 20 years older, like they got it figured out, we we think. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, okay, they're not they're not going through all these same things I am as a teenager. Like they've, they come out on the other side type of thing. Yeah. 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 I don't know how how articulately less said there, but no, um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Moslandia, Moslandia. Oh yeah. By Melissa Hidalgo. Right. Yeah. Just kind of his power for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think um, Melissa Hidalgo has written the definitive book on um, Latino, Latinx fandom of Morrissey. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a book that's both um, historical and critical, but at the same time, there are threads of the personal that uh, punctuate mm. the book and which I think give it its power. Mm. Uh, and I, and, you know, aside from Gustavo Ariano's piece on, on, on Latino fandom for Morrissey, you know, I think that book is kind of the definitive study um, of that phenomenon that kind of cuts through or um, kind of flies in the face of a lot of the other uh, music journalism that came out trying to crack the code as to why this mm. uh, bond existed in the first place. It doesn't traffic in some kind of, you know, uh, trying to you know connect to the two based on some stereotypical assumption of, you know, cultural, um, you know, essentialism, but it's more about thinking about the complexities of music, mm. which I think, you know, t- which really tie into the way that, people from different walks of life are always drawn to music that may or may not represent them um, in some, you know, coherent or predictable way. Yeah. Um, I mean, is, is Morsi, is he in 2023, is he incredibly problematic? Oh yeah. 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 And, and that's, has that been, sorry, has that been an evolving thing or is it something like, Hey, we, if you look back, you see it from the beginning. Yeah. You can see traces of it early on, yeah. you know, uh, with the Smith's panic, you know, which, is really about, you know, railing against black dance music um, in Britain, you know, hang the DJ. Uh, and then his solo stuff, his early solo stuff, like Bengalian platforms uh, or Asian rut, you know, it's a very nativist, you know, life is hard enough when you belong here, you know, just the, the <laughs> and it's like the implicit, um, you know, claim that if you're from, of South Asian descent and you migrate to Britain that you, you don't really belong. Uh, and it does feed into his conservative, conservative, con- conservative 
nativist um, sentiment that um, he really takes pride in now, mm. unfortunately. On a more positive note, um, heck of a vocabulary that is that is shown throughout this book. There's a there's a description of quote capacious space for the post. So the post and post punk. Mm. I can't say that I'm incredibly familiar with. How do you talk about post punk new wave? Like which is which is right, which populates most of the book, right? Yeah, yeah. How, how would you? What does post punk mean? Yeah, I think you know the the, the easier category to work with would have been new wave but yeah. i wanted to reclaim post-punk um as a way to um rail against the way that post-punk had been given a very limited time span mm. uh and then was also assigned you know certain characteristics that um that presumably identified what post-punk music was and i wanted to open that up to uh to talk about artists that had been there at the original um at the inception of of punk in the mm. uh, mid to late 70s so culture club for example you know boy george was at those sex pistols concerts you know the drummer from culture club john moss was a member of the damned in the clash and you know a lot of these bands who you know are d- identifiable as new wave you know i wanted to really foreground their punk roots and that they you know really were punk in 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 the way that they kind of um defied the mainstream or the norm you know especially regarding uh, gender and sexuality mm. and that one didn't have to play a certain style of music to be classified as post punk but we can use that designator as a way to account for the number of musicians that followed in the wake of the early punk movement in Britain. Hmm. Appreciate that. And, and um, you know, just throughout the book and you talk about, you know, the different bands that somewhere in, like just remind you, it seems like we, I assume it's maybe kind of the same way, but probably more so in those days, like such a small world in music, right? Oh yeah. So many yeah. connections. I mean, one degree, two degrees of separation, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So the, so yeah, so the book is seven chapters and a conclusion and each of the seven chapters, you know, of course, like you talked about, there's, there's overlap, but, but deals with, with one group, you know, as a, as an academic and as a poet, I talked about, you really have some great, some beautiful turns of phrase and also just like the, the, the structure, right. I think that comes with an academic book, like through Duke press. And, you know, so we have very much like a, a thesis for all you know of the chapters and, you know, and just the book as a whole. The first chapter is called Red Over White, and it's it's pronounced Susie. Am I correct? Yes. Right. So Susie and the Banshees. Talk about goth, and I, you know, there's kind of I wouldn't say resurgence and never went away, but you know, like uh, Jen Ortega and Wednesday Adams, and you know, mm. goth. You write about very well. It could be reduced. It could be um, people can be very reductive about it, but you, you write about it, and correct me if I'm wrong that Susie and the Banshees are more. It's not a horror type of thing. It's more like psychological. And it's more like to kind of like stand and be counted as different. Would she take, would they take offense? Would she take offense to the term goth? What were you, where were you going with that in describing them as goth, but but slightly different than maybe the, the reductive definition we're used to? Yeah. So they refused the, the label goth. Be, yeah. Because they felt that it was, you know, sim- simplifying the complexity of, of their music. And, mm-hmm. 
And I think that's absolutely right. You know, just to categorize an artist, you know, also means there's a certain expectation of what they should sound like um, or conforming to a particular style. Um, But, you know, on the flip side of that, I think, you know, there is a a goth subculture that, that, that really exists and, and, and Susie and the Banshees has been, you know, really pivotal for the creation of that goth culture. So I think like about a band like Bauhaus, you know, who is also categorized as goth and who refused that label, Mm -hmm. have really kind of come to embrace it because they realize that, you know, it's it's not about how they categorize their music, but it's about how the music is reconceptualized by their fans. And Mm. and so I think, you know, Susie, you know, tried to distinguish between goth and what she calls goth with two Fs. Right. And goth was, you know, for her, this caricaturized, you know, horror, um, you know, identity or 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 label that um wasn't about complexity and i believe it was um uh the drummer um from the banshees um budgie who said that their music was more um more hitchcock than it was or it was more blood dripping on a rose than um a scary monster you know okay so it's more hitchcock than you know some kind of exaggerated you know horror film yeah and which those could be that the the more drawn out can be scarier sometimes right we can be more scary yeah and like you said the psychological horror Mm -hmm. of things yeah Mm -hmm. i mean that's what made get out so scary yeah exactly it's not a it's not a slasher or anything like that yes um it seems like um and the name came up a few times kid congo powers and the cramps were kind of a connection yeah 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 uh so the cramps were a new york-based band and they eventually um relocated to la and uh, their um, drummer Brian Gregory left the band, and they recruited uh, one of their fans, uh, Brian Tristan, who was re-christened um, Kid Congo Powers, uh-huh. and he became the guitarist for a couple of years. Um, uh, and Kid Congo Powers is originally from um, La Puente, California, mm-hmm. Southern California, and uh, Mexican American kid who grew up listening to rock and roll, thanks to mm. you know his the older members of his family, and mm. he um, the Cramps opened up for Susie and the Banshees in Britain, and so Susie and Kid became good friends, and mm. and Donna Santisi, who's a widely recognized photographer of punk musicians, um, photographed them uh, at Disneyland when uh, Kid took Susie to Disneyland for her first time. That's a, that's a great shot in the book and is it is it um like was that the teacups or something like that i don't know i don't know what the was, but... the, the tomorrow the tomorrowland rockets <laughs> ah yes yes yes. <laughs> yeah 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 and um a, a picture is worth a thousand words but you you don't use a lot of words but you in describing the pictures and there's i don't know eight ten throughout the book maybe more yeah um but they're really um they really say a lot and just the pictures themselves and then your descriptions of them make them you know definitely a, a very necessary part of the book the going into chapter two, which is called touching Prince Charming, uh-huh, yes, but in, in, in ending with, with one, you talk about touching Susie and touch is a term. I mean, we all know what touch means, but I feel like you use it. I, I'm almost wondering like, does it have like a anthropological meaning? Does it have, you know what I mean? Like, I, I guess, how do you use touch um, throughout the book? Because it is very seemingly very um, concentrated or very um, on purpose, purposeful is the word. Yeah. Yeah. I want to use touch as a way to um, to index the various ways that um, this music um, had a 
had an impact on um, on various audiences. Um, but then also the people involved um, in those communities as well, the musicians and the fans, for example. And so, you know, I use touch um, as a way, uh, uh, one, to kind of rail against the way that in academic discourse, the term hapticity had become so popular. To I had to register. look that one up. I had to look that yeah. one up. It was in the book. Yeah. <laughs> one yeah. And I just thought it was so, I, you know, all of that stuff was, I don't want to say all of it, but, you know, it was, I was so bored with it. And I wanted to, you know, kind of cut through the morass of the theory mm. and, and really, you know, highlight, you know, what these intimacies um, were that existed uh, between, you know, listeners of music, um, all the parties that were involved in these scenes, to think about the way that touch is is a you know a, a a sentiment a feeling you know so you're touched by um, a song it moves you emotionally or psychologically but then the touch also manifests both in physical ways uh, mm-hmm. so that you know a, a brush up against someone an artist putting their arm around you a mm-hmm. kiss and I think this is the significance of the title too you know in terms of the way that I think about how the kiss is more than just a metaphor, but it's a, it's an act which requires, you know, at least two parties where the kiss is blown to one party and in order for it to, you know, in in order for it to be realized, it has to touch its intended target. Yeah. How did, how did Susie and the Banshees touch the Chicano Latino communities of, of SoCal and, and, and beyond? Yeah, I mean, you can see that in in a in a plethora of of, of literature by Latina Latino Latinx writers like uh, Juno Diaz and um, um, uh, and 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 other writers who you know reference Susie and the Banshee sometimes in passing, but it's always mm-hmm. about you know some disaffected kid who yeah. is like alienated or bullied at school, and they turn to Susie and the Banshees um, as a way to kind of you know, stand up and fight back and it gives them a kind of shield uh, against mm. the everyday abuse that they um, have to endure. Uh, and so I think the touch there is precisely about how this music has that kind of affective uh, possibility to um, give someone the strength to endure uh, in difficult situations. Mm. Uh, I also close the chapter by talking about how I run into Susie yep. at a at a bar in in Hollywood, um, and we, you know, she brushes up against me, and you know, we lock eyes, and I don't say anything because I'm afraid of you know what the outcome might be. So for me, that was a really important moment to see her in that space, um, and so that was also a pretty touching moment, as it were. Yeah, has she read the book? I don't know. I've been wanting to give her a copy, but um, I don't know if I. I'm, I'm going to try to get her one. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, like I said, speaking of touch, chapter two is called is about Adam Ant, yeah. um, touching Prince Charming. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you you write about. I mean, you you don't. Um, nobody gets a free pass. I mean, you um, you're very balanced. Um, if if somebody is is guilty of something, you're gonna you know write about it. You write about how Adam Ant is. He's racially aware, but he's also very ignorant. He's he induces a lot of stereotypes. Kind of starting at the end of that chapter, you end with like, the show in Santa Ana. I think more in recent times, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just the idea of, you know, Prince Charming is is two-sided. There's there's a darkness there too. I guess how did Adam Ant succeed and how did he fail in being inclusive, being op- being um, you know, educated on other cultures? Yeah. 
So, you know, that's that's been a, a, a point of concern for a lot of readers, mm. you know, when they ask me, how can you still listen to someone who writes a song like Puerto Rican or Juanito the Bandito? And, yeah. you know, and, and my answer is, you know, you have to think about the context. Like these songs are written at a moment where, you know, they're these working class British kids whose exposure to racial difference or um, people of ethnic uh, backgrounds from the States, for example, uh, come by way of, of, of uh, you know, the television set or sure. the, the the movie screen. And, you know, they only get, you know, a one-sided representation of, uh, of those people who are supposedly um, represented uh, by these films or uh, television programs, you know, or what have you. Uh, and so I think the gravitation towards those images are all about, you know, recognizing a certain difference uh, with which they can identify, not unlike the way that Latino kids identify with these British artists, hmm. but the way that they're kind of, um, you know, represented uh, in turn, say through the music, uh, oftentimes is is deeply troubling because it's kind of riffing off a uh, riffing on the stereotypical representations mm-hmm. that they're exposed to on television or in film so um so yeah i think you know and i as i talk about in the book you know some of those songs are really cringy you know as the kids say mm-hmm. and you know i don't like listening to them they're certainly not my favorite songs in his musical repertoire but there are others that you know i still find very empowering and and, and affirming um but I also, you know, I think that's another form of touch too, you know, where there is this interface between the British musician and the, you know, Latinx or Latino um, community or individuals by way of these representations that they're introduced to and hmm. how they manifest in their in their song lyrics. Hmm. Um, now, you, now you just said it is it is it pronounced Bauhaus? Yes. I, you know, I've always seen. I don't think I've ever heard it said out loud. I've you know seen no no the no the name for sure. Chapter three is darker entries. You know, we, we talked a little bit about goth and you make um, really interesting points about how goth is, is often racialized, you know, like going, you know, people stereotypically people going out of the way to, to you know, to, to do up the pallor, the, you know, the paleness and, you know, like in contrast to like dark clothing, right. And, you know, black hair, et cetera. And you write about how it's like, you know, it's kind of been deracialized, but it's like, well, you said Bauhaus makes it clear like there's there's dub and reggae and influence from, you know, many, uh, you know, musicians from the Caribbean, from the, you know, from the British uh, colonies, etc. Um, you know, and then bringing it to, to Miriam, the great Miriam Gerba, you know, a more contemporary writer, Taylor, I believe is the last name. Yeah. And just how they how they resisted, right? How they you talk about how this so much about this book is so great about how you it's a mutuality there, right? It's not the British send it one way. And the Latinx fans just take it. They put their own spin on, et cetera, right? So I guess just how darker entries, how that, you know, the name of that chapter and how that relates to to what Miriam writes about, about making goth or different styles their own, taking some yeah. and, and, you know, changing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you, you hit on it, um, which is to think about, um, you know, the so-called goth music um, as influenced by different um you know, musical traditions. And, 
you know, and I wanted to take issue with a claim that, you know, as I mentioned in the book, you know, that goth was the one musical form uh, uh, that had not been touched by black music, which I thought mm. was just really silly, especially yeah. when you think about Bauhaus's classic song, uh, Bella Lugosi's Dead, which is considered the goth anthem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the drummer Kevin Haskins says that um, his his drumming was inspired by the reggae um, that mm-hmm. he was listening to as a teenager. And, you know, all of these British kids were who were listening to punk were also inspired by reggae. You know, you know, Don Letts, um, the famous um, DJ um, and um, musician in his own right and filmmaker, you know, was front and center uh, in the punk movement and in introducing these British punk white kids to this music from the caribbean and um and that's also what inspired the creation of two-tone where you have the reinvention of ska um uh and its uh, materialization as as two-tone where you have these black kids whose families had migrated to britain uh with the windrush generation and these working class white kids, you know, and they're growing up in these council estates together and they're listening to the same music and they create, you know, a, a musical genre, which is a fusion of, hmm. of, of their respective, you know, cultures and, 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 and music uh, that they're listening to. Hmm. And so, yeah, it, it, I just wanted to point up those influences um, in a band like Bauhaus and, and how, you know, there are num- a number of references to dub and reggae uh, in Bauhaus's musical repertoire. Hmm. And then and then most a few of the well, three of the members of Bauhaus migrate to Southern California right. and you know, they're influenced by by Chicano culture. You know, and, and so I wanted to show, you know, what those examples were. The offshoot project Love and Rockets, t- you know, they take hmm. their name from the Hernandez brothers from Oxnard, California. Um, and so. You know, those influences, as you mentioned, you know, are, are mutual and it, mm. it's, it's an influence that runs both ways. Yeah, I, I, I definitely do not feel educated on, on goth music. You, so when you say Bella Lugosi is like the anthem, do you mean from from a certain group or do you mean like the anthem? Like if you were to talk about goth as a whole, like that's probably the anthem? Yeah, yeah. And, it, it's been described as the um, the stairway to heaven for goth. <laughs> that's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chapter four is soft sell and, you know, they're one hit wonders. And like I always say, man, I'd love to be a one hit wonders. It's one more hit than, than most people have. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, mostly, I mean, you talk about n- not only that, but, but tainted love and kind of connecting it to Latina uh, queer sensibilities. And the, the chapter is called the shining sinners. Yeah. Um, Diana was a woman you saw, I want to say at a concert. I, I talk about uh, going to see Mark Allman as a high school senior with a group of my friends uh, from Santa Ana and we're moved from the back of the uh, the venue to the front, or the second row, actually, uh, because the show didn't sell out um, and it actually was sparsely attended. Nice. And we got to see Mark Allman um, up close and in the front row was this glorious um, person who I dubbed Diana um, mm-hmm. after Diana Ross kept referring to her as Miss Ross, and um, you know she was just kind of a a sight to behold, and um, and I think also a memorable um, 
moment uh, of that concert and not only the concert itself, but also just witnessing someone who was gender defiant and, mm. uh, and just, you know, very self-confident and especially as a teenager, that was very um, inspiring to me. Mm. Uh, but yeah. Now the, the writer is name pronounced Retchy. John Retchy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot about John Retchy in this, in this chapter um, that, you know, he was a, a writer who, definitely you know push the push the envelopes right in so many different ways he wrote about you know i mean hustling as a term for prostituting basically right yeah and just wrote very you know very like diana very confident very open you know maybe fictionalized or not but but very confident what he wrote and just about how if we're talking about touching kissing across the ocean you know about how his work influenced mark almond yeah yes yeah so this yeah. And, and and I'm sorry. And the last, you know, lastly, just about like the the Puerto Rican quote unquote Puerto Rican drag bars in New York, and just you, you really paint a picture of like you know pre gentrification, not so so I don't know, but just you know the the more touristy you know type of thing now, where you know there was um there was very much a, a nice mix of people in those days. So I, I just wonder how how Mark Almond kind of connects with with John Retchie and just ideas of being confident in what he writes and what he sings. Yeah. So, you know, I was really struck by the fact that, you know, that Reggie, who is a Chicano, uh, Scottish, um, Mm -hmm. who grew up in El Paso, Texas, you know, his work influences uh, Mark Allman and Soft Cell in general, uh, you know, to write songs uh, that are inspired by this, um, these sexual underworlds that uh, that Reggie writes about in his novels um, and books in general. Uh, But, you know, it's well, Soft Cell's first album, Nonstop Erotic Cabaret, is all about the Soho scene and the peak shows. And yeah, it's a great, great <laughs> album. Uh, but they, you know, they hit it big with Tainted Love. They come to the United States, they fall in love with New York. And um, on their second album, they have a song titled Numbers, which is actually the title of um, John Ritchie's second novel. Mm. And so Allman has always been influenced by by Ritchie's work, which I th- thought was um, utterly fascinating. Now, one of the things about Ritchie's, um status as a Chicano writer, a lot of you know critics have lamented the fact that he doesn't make an issue of his uh, ethnic identity, uh, mm. especially in his early work. And I'm saying it doesn't matter because what happens is that Allman, you know, draws on his work and and uses it as kind of a way to document these queer sexual subcultures that he's exposed to um, in New York and going to these you know, Puerto Rican drag balls. Um, and so Soft Cell has a song called La Escuelita, which is named after the famous uh, Puerto Rican um, gay bar um, mm. in, in Manhattan. And, you know, and, and, and you can kind of see the the way that Retchie's work, um, you know, inspires not only Soft Cell, but also Mark, Mark Allman's solo work. Mm. Allman has a song called City of Nights. Um, and Retchie's first novel is City of Night. Um, and 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 then I'm also yeah talking about the the disappearing spaces of those mm-hmm. sexual subcultures, um, and the way that they helped promote a certain kind of you know traffic between people of different races and ethnicities mm-hmm. and and class backgrounds, um, and you know as a result of gentrification, those spaces are ceasing to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you you also write about how you know the title song meaning the shining sinners 
and you know exotic exotic what's the word exotic yeah yeah and and othering right and um you know conflating you know conflating chicano mexican-american chicano x with you know with puerto rican and you know using the warriors as yeah. that movie as mm-hmm. like you know you know comparisons and and so again you know you you have a lot of love and respect it seems for mark almond and for the work but also not afraid to you know there's there's some issues here for sure. I wonder about that the the title song and Shining Sinners about how that did lead to an exotization and 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 um and othering. Yeah, you know, and there's a line in the song that uh, references you know, well, it's all about Almond turning down the wrong street in New York and mm. reminds him of of, of the film The Warriors yeah, and, yeah. and he's staring into you know, as he says some Chicano chick's eyes, you know, who's about to beat him up or something and uh, and yeah it, it really is you know kind of the mapping on um this knowledge acquired from from film onto you know uh, you know uh, on the ground everyday life experience uh with someone of a different racial background and the conflation of ethnicity i think uh which i think is oftentimes part and parcel of representations of racial difference in film you know, also manifests in 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 a song like um, "The Shining Sinners," but um, yeah, I kind of I, I I wanted to title the chapter "The Shining Sinners" because it was all about you know putting the spotlight on these so-called sinners um, mm. who were kind of given their due respect uh, in the context of almonds and soft cells work. Mm. Yeah. Chapter five is zoot suits and secondhand knowledge. How how do you pronounce it? Turk del Rondo. Oh, Blue Rondo a la Turk. Oh, not even close. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, just the ideas of like, I thought it was so interesting how you work with secondhand, you know, secondhand knowledge as zoot suits were in some ways secondhand, meaning, you know, past, maybe not literally passed down, but from previous generations, you talk about like your, I guess it would have been your grandparents' generation, like the 40s. Yes. Right. And just ideas of secondhand and that it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be a negative at all. Right. Secondhand knowledge is can be a great thing, you know, thrift shop, you know, as far as, you know, the actual suit and then ideas of masculinity, too, where in some ways people see the the suit and such as as very much masculine, um, but also doesn't have to be right. It's, it's been repurposed uh, more so for the working class. Yes. And then the fact that the 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 band you talk about, they were multi multi-ethnic. Yeah and really representative of, of London in many ways. So I wonder about like the symbol of the zoot suit and how it was, how it was repurposed in the eighties and beyond, and especially in this type of music. Yeah. You know, it, it was, this chapter was an opportunity for me to think about the significance of the suit for both me and, and my grandparents. Yeah. Um, but it was also a chance to, you know, kind of, to recall the fact, and I, you know, I'm not the first to do this, but to recall the fact that the zoot suit had a life outside of the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. So that in the 1940s, you know, the the suit was also uh, worn by um, uh, Jamaican youth who had migrated from the Caribbean um, in the Windrush generation, uh, and then also um, African American sailors during the war had introduced uh, British youth to the zoot suit, and so. It, kind of took flight uh then mm. um as it did in the u.s with 
um, African Americans, you know, Malcolm X's autobiography, of course, you know, spotlights, you know, black youth wearing the zoot suit, mm. uh, Filipinos and in, in the U.S. and then also Mexican Americans in Southern California with the zoot suit riots, for example. Huh. Um, but then the zoot suit kind of comes back in the '80s, you know, and and I you can see this in Lowrider magazine in the early '80s. You see, mm. you know, all these photo spreads of of young Mexican American youths wearing zoot suits, and you know, the stores that are cropping up selling zoot suits like the one that still exists in Fullerton, California. But in the eighties, you know, the zoot suit is also kind of on the rise again. Um, you know, and British youth are embracing it um, in the midst of the new romantic scene. So, you know, the new romantics who are sometimes defined by bands like Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet, you know, are not only wearing this glittery, puffy, you know, poofy um, clothing, but a lot of kids are also wearing zoot suits and, and these zoot suits aren't, you know, the Anthony Price suits that are popularized in the 1980s mm-hmm. that are thousands and thousands of dollars, but they're actually, you know, secondhand garments that are found at um, at um, charity shops, and mm-hmm. you know, and and it's kind of this, you know, repurposing of 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 the secondhand uh, style as well as the garments themselves that make a um, a return uh, to that particular um, fashion scene. Uh, at the moment so yeah i i wanted to play on this notion of secondhand as you know not only in reference to the zoot suit but also the way that you know people are constantly borrowing from uh things of the past uh and then also you know cultural traditions that are supposedly not theirs and you know and i wanted to use this occasion uh, the occasion of this chapter to write against this notion of cultural appropriation Mm. which i felt you know easily you know for our shutdown conversation about these, you know, really dynamic cultural exchanges that exist and to accuse someone of cultural appropriation oftentimes forecloses the mm-hmm. opportunity to think about the way that cult- different cultures are always influencing, you know, people of different backgrounds. Yeah, definitely. Um, Christos, is that how you pronounce? Christos uh-huh. Tolera? Yes. Um, he, you got to meet him. Yeah, yeah, I had uh, coffee with him in in London, and and I'm still in touch with him, you know, from time to time, and he's a really great guy. Oh, very cool. How how did you know he was like the like the model, like when the in the zoo suit, right? Yeah, um, kind of like a like you might say Latino adjacent or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how the band was, how the zoo suit informed the music, and vice versa. Just kind of yeah. like that that aesthetic. Yeah, so it it really is the the brainchild of of. Of Chris Sullivan, who is one of the other um, central figures in Blue Rondo. Um, and Chris Sullivan's written a number of articles about the history of the Zoot Suit. But yeah, I, I was really fascinated by the way that the band was not only characterized by their adornment of the Zoot Suit, but also the fact that they were playing Latin music. And as mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, this music isn't just played by, you know, these white British kids, but it's also, you know, the result of two two particular band members who had migrated from Brazil to London mm. and you know in the 1980s we witness um a my um you know increased migration from Latin America to the UK and with those two members joining the band you know it was like the influence of latin music mm. that um kind of complemented the interest of that uh, of those other members um who were always drawn to latin music in the first place but i think you know they kind of helped bolster um, that Latin sound. So it's an interesting interplay that's both um, 
you know, concerning both style as well as um, musical sensibility or character. Chapter six is Mexican Americanos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood. Um, you referenced that, that the shirt from, I think, Chandler 19 in Friends. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, say relax. <laughs> yeah. And, and a lot about just like the, the Englishman kind of, I, I don't think in a patronizing way, I don't think in a patronizing way, looking out for the oppressed in the United States, right? Was he the one who came from a, from a Romani, Romani family? Oh, that was Adamant. That, that was Adamant. Yeah. Oh, was it? okay. You know, again, like you talked about with the the earlier book. I'm sorry, the the, her, 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 the author's name is escaping me, but how you know it was a great combination of the personal, maybe Hidalgo's. Oh yeah, Hidalgo right? and uh, Francesca Royster too. Yeah, yeah, Francesca Royster as well. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you had the the, the very sad death of your great grandmother, who was really a, a matriarch in the family. Yes. And um, but there was there was joy in Frankie goes Hollywood. Frankie goes to Hollywood, right? There was joy. There was, you know, um. You know, unabashedly gay or queer, whatever the, the term you would use, and just vibrant in a time where you, um, you know, were very sad um, for obvious reasons. And you also felt like, is it safe to say that Frankie Goes to Hollywood was kind of like the anti boy George as far as being, <laughs> yeah, they, they openly were... queer, right? Yeah, they were very much positioned against him. And, and boy George was very vocal in his denunciation of the band because he thought they were, you know, too crude and, you know, uh-huh. Even, yeah and i think a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were openly gay and and he wasn't at the time yeah 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 and and so um the americanos you know this idea of it it was written around the time of the irca the i guess is that the same as like the amnesty law mm-hmm. i mean yeah. no, there's a lot of different um parts of that but you know reagan's 1986 the amnesty law or called irca and you know the supposed land of the free you write about how the how the IRCA really had a lot of, you know, really backfired or, I mean, you can argue about how much it really was supposed to help those who, who had immigrated and migrated, but um, Mexican Americanos, you know, obviously is Spanglish in a way. I just wonder about the title of that and what that has to do with like oppression and speaking up for those who are oppressed. And, and again, that, that mutual, the kiss across the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. So that chapter, you know, as you mentioned, you know, it starts off with Frankie goes to Hollywood. And I talk about, you know, at that time, you know, there was always this, you know, looming threat of nuclear war and, mm. and the bands. No tribes. big deal, right? Yeah, no big deal at all. You know, and, and, and I think we're kind of revisiting that, you know, that threat <laughs> yeah. now. You cry um, so you don't, you laugh so you don't cry, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a, it, the song was about that, um, that, that threat of nuclear war, but it was also, you know, set to a dance beat and mm-hmm. um, it was very sexually charged in some ways that was similar to their earlier single relax. Um, and so I, I kind of moved from Frankie goes to Hollywood to the solo career of Holly Johnson, who's the lead singer of, of Frankie goes to Hollywood. And um, one of his first solo singles, uh, which was titled Americanos and, it was inspired by um, a newspaper article that he read um, on a trip to Pittsburgh where his partner's family uh, lives. And he wanted to, you know, write a song that was all about the way that Mexican-Americans had been in the United States for the longest time. And yet they were consistently denied um, recognition as, as Americans. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and he wanted to tie that in with this, you know, ongoing, um, you know, anxiety about Mexican immigration. 
Uh, and, you know, for me, it was really amazing to to find out about this song um, and, you know, that someone who was openly gay, like Holly Johnson, whose um, work with Frankie Goes to Hollywood was so important to me, also connected to my interest in in Chicano history. And it just kind of showed that there was this bridge between that there was a bridge that could be made between uh, Frankie's work and Holly Johnson's solo work. Mm. And um, I wrap up that chapter with a personal anecdote about how I eventually meet Holly Johnson. um, And we meet up uh, over an English breakfast in London and we exchange stories about what it's like to grow up in Liverpool as compared to growing up in Santa Ana. And and we just hit it off. And it was a really great Mm -hmm. moment uh, where, you know, that it reminded me that there was, you know, that there were similarities um, that we could talk about uh, yeah. that existed between, you know, growing up in, in Britain at a particular time and growing up in the United States at a, you know, a, a few, a decade later. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I read Holly Johnson, I'm, I'm assuming uh, female, but you said that's uh, from a Warhol, it's connected to Warhol in some way? Yeah, so he took his name from um, a Warhol uh, figure by the name of Hollywood Lawn, who was oh. a, a trans uh, Puerto Rican uh, actor in uh, or some some Warhol films. Oh, OK. Yeah. Chapter seven is Lat- Latin slash Latino American Party, um, the Pet Shop Boys. And you you seem like you were maybe um, um, expecting some fallout from even, <laughs> you know, from even right calling them post-punk yeah. um, and really kind of including them with, you know, some some of the other groups. And they seem to probably took on hip-hop i mean what was hip-hop at the time yeah um and domino dancing is kind of the song that's that's really focused on it was a critical and then ideas of like that and i was it was that the video that was controversial quote-unquote yeah it was banned by mtv right and you know and you know how much that did or did not affect its critic the group's critical success i mean the the video was incredibly homoerotic yeah right and therefore like oh geez you know um, and so the question is, how much did that really affect their their critical, their 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 commercial appeal? Um, you write a lot about freestyle, which, um, you know, I was able to, to to follow up a little bit. It really kind of piqued my interest again. How 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 are freestyle and I guess hip hop related? And like, what's kind of like the the Latino, the Latinx footprint on freestyle, especially through women, right? Yeah, yeah. So early on, you know, freestyle was considered, you know, part of hip hop culture. And uh, I think it kind of um, gets cut out because of the way that it's oftentimes regarded as frivolous or more of a feminine, you know, mm. musical style that doesn't hold up against, you know, say the more masculinist um, narratives of what counts as hip hop. Uh, but yeah, so freestyle um, as a genre, it's, you know, electronic based, uh, uh, most of it is, uh, you know, it, it features women uh, on vocals uh, and, you know, people have drawn attention to their nasally voices mm-hmm. and, you know, the kind of uh, simplistic, you know, love gone awry narratives that oftentimes, you know, are front and center of a hip hop, excuse me, of a freestyle song. Uh, but what I found fascinating was that it was uh, a freestyle um, band um or trio, as it were, uh, Expose, which had inspired the Pet Shop Boys. You know, mm. when they come to the United States, they hear Expose, particularly their song Point of No Return. Mm. And they realize that they want to uh, make a song in the same vein as Expose song. 
And so they reach out to Cuban-American producer Louis Martinet mm. in Miami, and they fly to Miami to work with him. And they produce a song titled Domino Dancing, which if you listen to it, sounds very similar to Expose's Point of No Return. Um, As in like getting sued for it that close or? Um, maybe not that close, but you okay. can kind of, the you know, the, you know, the, I think the sonic resonances between the two, you know, are kind of, they point to a, a particular kind of genre that makes it distinguishable uh, as, as, as freestyle. Yeah. You know, there's that, that famous vanilla ice thing where he was trying to show the difference between the beat for, for ice ice baby and under pressure by David Bowie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think it's yeah. kind of, I think it's become a meme now. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. You wrote really, really well about, um, you know, ideas, you know, authenticity, obviously that's the term, right? What does, what does that even mean? And foods and, you know, is that authentic? And I, I assume Eddie, E-D-D-Y, who you write about, I assume he, he's a white man. Yeah, it's okay. Right? Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, just he was one one of, seems like many who attacked um, the Pet Shop Boys for a quote unquote, like, you know, the Latin sound in inauthenticity. And um, you write here, quote, he whines, like, I don't know if this is Eddie's words, he whines about betrayal and betrays us. The greatest betrayal in such an appraisal, however, lies in the critic's inability to discern what a Latino cultural influence looks and sounds like. Right? Speaking on something he doesn't know about. That's not authentic. <laughs> okay, then what? Okay, Mr. Eddie, what's authentic? Uh, right. Yeah. I feel like, you know, he probably wouldn't be able to say it, right? Yeah. I, I kind of wanted to beat him at his own game, you know, and, and, uh-huh. and, 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 and really call him out for you know his lack of authenticity which he's accusing <laughs> other people of yeah so the the conclusion is is so cool how you really you know i mean strings and threads being brought back together you end kind of more or less talking about two key concerts from 2017 that would be what strange love and sweet and tender hooligans yeah yeah so you make it really you know so those are are fronted by coming from wrong freddie morales and jose maldonado and you really, again, if we talk about so much about the the kids across the ocean, and I think I would probably speak to this too, that, you know, cover bands or tribute bands often are kind of like looked down upon. Yeah. Right. But you really make the point, like you write, quote, that they're re-engaging and reinterpreting. Um, so I wonder about how those those concerts and seeing. So so I'm sorry. First of all, tell us. So Strange Love would be a tribute band for. Depeche Mode. Depeche yeah. Mode, and then Sweet and Tender Hooligans. The Smiths. The Smiths, right? So how did they serve as, I don't know if conduit's the word, or, you know, how do they serve as um, as a kiss across the ocean? What is, what added value do they have? And I'm sorry to make it so businesslike, you know. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I think, you know, one of the things that I've always marveled about, um, about these particular tribute bands is that, you know, they're they're not only um, copying the original band, but they're also kind of making the original band theirs in, in their own distinct way. And uh, and I think, you know, what you have um, are uh, performers who have been inspired by two groups, the Depeche Mode and, and the Smiths, and who are paying tribute to, you know, these bands that have influenced them, but they're also putting their own spin mm-hmm. on their music, uh, whether it's through, you know, the translation of the song lyrics into Spanish mm-hmm. um, or actually drawing attention to their um, ethnicity as Latino mm-hmm. and um, and doing so in a way that doesn't take away from their creativity um, and their uniqueness. 
and I think, you know, I was surprised myself when I took in um, their shows, you know, thinking that it was more of kind of like a novelty than anything. And, and then just being in these, in these venues that were, you know, sold out and, mm-hmm. and people actually engaging with the music in a way where it wasn't evident that there was an original band that was mm-hmm. kind of overshadowing the performance, but it was the per- the performers on the stage who were actually giving life to the audience um, mm-hmm. on their own um, distinct terms. And, I just find that really fascinating and um and it's not surprising that you know they continue to sell out shows here in Southern California. Um they're extremely popular. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a cool way to bring together the idea of the kiss across the ocean. Like you talk about, I, I picture like the person who's receiving the kiss, you know, the blown kiss has to move a little bit, has to right, has to adapt. Yeah. Um and then just the idea of the quote the quote unquote tra- transatlantic touch. And yeah, just like the the image of like like you said, a sold out show in 2017 repurposing re you know refurbishing like music from you know from the 80s is not just about the nostalgia it's about there's there's something different and new and in a new sense of energy to it right yeah and if i if you don't mind i can i'd like to say something else please you know in in that conclusion i talk about um this dj collective uh named ghost town from Mm -hmm. anaheim and that's another example of the repurposing of this music or uh translating it for a different you know, context uh, at a different historical moment. You know, it's these two um, younger uh, guys, Latinos from Anaheim, who um, play ska and reggae and um, soul music from both the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, for various fundraisers. And they take their name from the song by the specials Ghost Town, which is mm. all about the economic disenfranchisement of Britain at the time for uh, young youths or for, for youth, British youth. And, um, you know, by taking on that name ghost town, they're kind of translating that mm. historical context for what's happening to, you know, Latino youth um, in Southern California and at the border, for example, um, the criminalization of, of Latinos. And mm. I just think it's really fascinating that they're, you know, picking up on this music of a previous generation and, yeah repurposing it uh, for today and so it it really does kind of refuse the narrative of nostalgia to show that this music continues to live on and inspire uh, younger generations of 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 listeners yeah art begets art right yes exactly creativity begets creativity yes you talked about some of the the poetry that you're writing i wonder um you know just if you have anything you want to add about any future projects you have coming up yeah some doing a few things i'm uh, i'm editing a, a collection of plays by the playwright ricardo bracho um who's from la um i'm finishing up this book of poems called um exemplars and accomplices about my time uh living in chicago um about you know hanging out at you know night night light spots from uh until four in the morning mm-hmm. <laughs> um and um yeah, I'm also kind of imagining a collection of of my essays that have been published um, in different um, venues, uh, trying to pull them together. And uh, I also I'd also love to continue to work on on music. And so I'm having a I have a few ideas about what I'd like to do next. Um, one of which is to write a whole book on uh, soft cells, nonstop erotic cabaret. Okay. Yeah. I I just had a a eureka moment where. Um... My my brothers are really into this tribute band 
cover band. You you probably know. I mean, I think they went throughout California. Maybe they're still going, but Tainted Love. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I I'm not. I mean, I saw them three or four times, and they were always, you know, sold out. Um, but I it took me. I mean, obviously, I knew the song Tainted Love, but in reading your book, it's like, oh man, okay. There's so much more to it than just the song, and it's just, it's just such a um just such an atmosphere around that that really that really changes yeah. things very interesting yeah. yeah heck of a book like i said and um you know tell us about like uh where to get it any any particular bookstores that you really want to shout out sure yeah i mean you can order it through duke university press but um you know i've been i, I really excited to see it um on sale at some of my favorite bookstores uh libro mobile in santa Ana. okay uh, which is an independent bookstore uh, that's run by um, Sarah Rafael Garcia, who's done an amazing job of mm-hmm. of promoting um, you know local authors uh, from Santa Ana mm-hmm. and also writers of color. Um, City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, right. um, one of my favorites, which we talked about good. earlier, yeah. Erling Getty and and those guys. Um, and then also, uh, just I, I would say, you know, if none of those bookstores are accessible to you, um, independent bookstores are are the way to go. You know, I think mm. you have to continue to support them. Definitely. Um, you know, the T the T matters in your name as far as finding you online. <laughs> help help us. Uh, so you're on Instagram and Twitter. Yes, on both. Yeah. Okay. Are you uh, are you what's the word? Are you actively online? Are you very online? Easy to read. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, Sometimes I get bombarded with emails, and so it takes a while for me to respond. But if it's on Twitter or Instagram, um, I'm usually a little bit faster about responding. So stay tuned for for future projects. For those you know, follow him online uh, through social media. Get the book, and um, you know, again, thanks so much. It has it's an academic book in in all the good ways, and it's also a creative work in so many good ways. It's a personal book. It's a memoir, and um, just so interesting and. You know, I hope people will go and buy it. And, and thank you for talking to me and, and continue great luck with the rest of with all of your writing. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And, you know, I just I love what you do. And it, it's a great honor to be uh, part of it. Right back at you. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What a pleasure it's been to speak today to Richard T. Rodriguez. Continue good luck to him with his writing. We're so looking forward to continuing to follow his career and his important work. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Wall podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a five-star review. You can ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music, though we don't want to give Bezos any more money. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast peter real last name is spelled r-i-e-h-l check out the page that describes the benefits of a patreon membership including cool swag merch and bonus episodes thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show my diy podcast and my extensive reading research editing and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high quality content the intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. Both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 171 with Danielle Prescott. Danielle is an author, content creator, and journalist. She's a 15-year veteran of the beauty and fashion industry and a graduate of NYU's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. 
a lifelong fashion obsessive. She was most recently the style director of BET.com. Her book, Token Black Girl, is part memoir, part narrative nonfiction, and an exploration of the ways that modern media can influence one's self-esteem. That episode will air on March 21st. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Richard T. Rodriguez, whose work, like A Kiss Across the Ocean, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.